Hello, today we're going to be discussing a paper entitled The Revision of the 2014 European Tobacco Products Directive, an analysis of the tobacco industry's attempts to break the health silo. And I'll be speaking with Sylvie Peters, who is part of a collaboration between the University of Bath, Oxford University, and the London School of Hygiene. Hello, Sylvie, and welcome. Hello, Becky. Thank you for having me. No trouble. Now, to just start off, tell us, what, why did you do this research? What was the motivation behind it? Well, existing literature had already revealed that the tobacco industry's efforts to derail previous European legislation, such as the 2001 TPD, TPD is, by the way, Tobacco Products Directive, um, mm-hmm. and the 2003 Advertising Directive, but this time we're actually dealing with a change policy context. Like, on the one hand, you have Article 5.3 of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and this, of course, requires parties, including the EU and its member states, who have signatories to the FCTC, uh, to protect their tobacco control policies from the commercial and other vested interests of the tobacco industry. So this should really mitigate the tobacco industry's ability to influence European policy. But yet, on the other hand, we now have regulatory reforms known as better or smart regulation, which were implemented to reduce regulatory burdens and enhance business competitiveness. And it actually mm. uses two tools. Now, there are impact assessments that actually estimate the costs and benefits of a proposed policy. And then you have stakeholder consultation, which allows those affected by the policy be consulted early in the policy process. Now, what's particularly worrying is that evidence has shown that British American Tobacco, one of the big four tobacco companies in the world, and other companies which actually manufacture products that are damaging to health, were instrumental in promoting better regulation in the EU, anticipating that it would be harder to enact public health legislation. So what we really wanted to do was explore whether British American Tobacco's predictions were correct, Mm-hmm. Does better regulation enable corporate influence? And is the application of Article 5.3 of the Framework Convention adequate to prevent this tobacco industry interference? So basically, the aim of our study was twofold. First, we wanted to explore the size and nature of the tobacco industry's efforts to influence the TPD, identifying key entry points used to access and shape the policy process. But secondly, we also wanted to examine how the new policy context mitigated or facilitated tobacco industry influence. Well, so I'm guessing there was a lot of tension between this sort of new way of consulting, you know, for European regulation and Article 5.3. And so what did you find? Were the tobacco companies successful in shifting the focus away from health to economics? How, what, what did they do? Uh, well, certainly one of their biggest strategy was to um, shift the debate from health to economics. And that's quite clearly, they knew, of course, that they can't win the battle on a public health platform. For instance, in the Commission, rather than lobbying the health department, freedom of information documents showed that the tobacco industry were actually targeting the departments of agriculture, the mm-hmm. department of enterprise and trade. And the industry arguments were framed around alleged economic consequences of the TPD, such as catastrophic job losses and an increase in illicit trade. And I should say the Department for Health were actually responsible for conducting the TPD's impact assessment. So Mm -hmm. the tobacco industry criticized the impact assessment, claiming that it hadn't fully considered the alleged unintended negative economic consequences of the TPD, and it presented the loads of reports that costed these alleged consequences without taking into account the public health savings. 
Now, you know, I must say that the industry has used this strategy over and over again also to interfere with the 2001 Tobacco Products Directive. But the difference now is that the better regulation frameworks gives more prominence to these arguments, uh, giving the industry an opportunity to frame their arguments. And interestingly enough, an impact assessment should be reviewed by the impact assessment board. So the Department for Health prepares the impact assessment and then it goes to the impact assessment board who either says, yes, you've done a good job, or no, go back and do more. And actually one of the first reviews of the impact assessment board was actually telling the Department for Health that they had to draw more comprehensively on the detailed views of economic actors, including, of course, the tobacco industry. So it certainly was successful in a certain degree. So the scale of this, this sort of lobbying effort that they put forward, you know, to try to work in and around and uh, through health, mm. how big was it? Oh, it was, it was really massive. And if you compare the tobacco industry's lobbying efforts compared to public health, for instance, it was just mm-hmm. like a David and Goliath scenario. I mean, Brussels-based NGOs had about, I think, five full-time equivalent staff working on the TPD. Mm-hmm. Now, this is in very stark contrast to tobacco giant Philip Morris, who had more than 160 people working on the TPD, according to its own leaked documents. So that's just massively. Wow. And, of course, this enabled the company to individually approach a third of the members of European Parliament before the TPD proposal even made it to the Parliament. So, and that was Philip Morris alone. We didn't have access to a similar data set from the other transnational tobacco companies, but interview data and freedom of information documents surely suggest that the others were similarly active. Mm. And what I think is also very important to note about the, the industry's lobbying response was actually their extensive use of third parties, which Philip Morris actually in its leaked documents described as being key to success in undermining the TPD. I mean, we saw it in 2010, the European Commission held an online public consultation on the TPD, and that attracted more than 85,000 responses. 85,000? 85,000, of which which 96% were contributions of citizens. Now, that is unheard of for Mm. EU policy consultation. And it actually turned out, because the European Commission actually did an analysis and presented a report, it turned out that more than half of these were duplicates, and then two-thirds of the responses were due to tobacco industry-led mobilization campaigns in Italy and Poland. We actually also identified 137 associations and about 34 private companies that also mm-hmm. voiced their support for pro-tobacco um, outcomes in other ways, for instance, by contacting EU officials, uh, contributing to working groups that were developing TPD counter-strategies, or, for instance, criticizing the TPD in the media or signing anti-TPD petitions. And at the moment, we're actually um, examining whether these third parties have financial links uh, with the tobacco companies. And so this is still ongoing work. But so far, we have identified that already 51 of these third-party associations which do not always disclose that they have financial links with the tobacco companies, but they certainly do. So that's mm. still a big piece of work. It's quite clear that the consultation process was, you know, how representative is it really when it's been hijacked by multinationals? And I think we can also say it's certainly also delayed. Uh, it's basically flooded the consultation, it flooded the European Commission, and it's certainly delayed the process, I think, but it took six months for them to actually analyse 
all the information that came through. So, mm. and and timing was a very important issue with the tobacco products directive because we had our, the European Parliament was going to be re-elected in 2014, in mm-hmm. May 2014. So we really needed to have the proposal adopted by that time. So it was a very close call. Do you feel the most negative outcome of this process was the time delay, or did they actually manage to water down some of the, the regulatory requests as well? I actually say it wasn't the delays, because in the end, mm-hmm. the TPD w- was passed on time. But I would say that the most negative outcome would be the removal of one of the provisions that the industry was most concerned about, and that was plain mm-hmm. packaging. Packaging. I right. mean, if that had been introduced EU-wide, it would have, after, of course, Australia's adoption, set a major precedence globally. But, oh, yeah. you know, I do think it's important to remember the enormous opposition that we faced. And, you know, for some time, as I said before, it, it didn't look like the TPD was going to be passed on time. So I do think that we should consider the TPD a success. Mm-hmm. And it certainly significantly advances public health in Europe. I mean, we're now going to have 65% combined health warnings on the front and back of a cigarette pack. And importantly, member states that want to go beyond the requirements specified in the TPD can do so now. And the UK, Ireland and France are already considering adopting plain packaging legislation, so hopefully others will follow. Well, yes, it looks like the UK today looks like they're actually going to be really close to doing it, which was very exciting and unexpected news. And so would you just maybe have any lessons for other countries on how they can avoid having their same regulatory processes hijacked by these tobacco companies? Because obviously what they do in one country, they go and do everywhere else. So is there anything we can do to prevent this from happening? Transparency is the key word. I think that those engaged in influencing policymaking should be obliged to declare who they are, on whose behalf they're lobbying, the nature of their lobbying activities, and, and if they have any conflicts of interest. And I suggest it's also important to move beyond the traditional boundaries of public health and engage with upstream policy initiatives that could impact health policies, such as better regulation. I mean, check if better regulation is pushed in your country and be cautious of its impacts and engage with non-health elements of the governments. These are the people that the tobacco industry are targeting with their pro-tobacco messages. And then I suppose finally I suggest it's more important than ever really that we make sure that Article 5.3 of the Framework Convention is understood and implemented whole of government because that's what we found. Even though in the health departments it's implemented very well, non-health elements are not necessarily that good at it. So it should be implemented whole of government and um, hopefully that will make it a little bit more difficult for them in the future. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think that there is too much focus on keeping tobacco control and particularly the CTC within health. Yes. And industries no, re- realize that and is going over and above and around and through health to, to get around that. So that's exactly. fantastic. And using third parties. I mean, that's it. I mean, we have a definition of the, the tobacco industry but you know they perhaps that's an unintended consequence of article 5.3 that the the tobacco industry is now more and more looking at more credible parties to push their Mm -hmm. message absolutely people who are interested in reading the full paper of course can access it on the tobacco control website and certainly there's um there's quite a few papers that i know your research group has put together about tobacco industry interference and tobacco control So I would encourage people to read deeper and explore more of your work. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Sylvie. 